I write as one amateur to another, talking about difficulties that I have met or lights I have gained. This is Pints with Jack, Season 7, Episode 12. Letters from Jack. After Hours with Dr. Diana Glyer. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. This month is an After Hours month on Pints with Jack, and today we really have a first. I'm interviewing someone who has already been on the show this season, in fact it was only a couple of weeks ago, and she's actually making her third appearance this season, which is definitely a first for any guests. And she's returning for a very important reason, which we will get to soon enough. Obviously, today I am joined by Dr. Diana Glyer. All listeners should be able to recite her biographical information by heart (laughs) at this point. Professor in the Honours College at Azusa Pacific University, author of The Company They Keep, Bandersnatch, The Major and the Missionary, and all of her work has one constant theme, creativity thrives in community. Dr. Diana Glyer, welcome back again to Pints with Jack. Oh, it's really a joy to be here. I I am so grateful for the chance to have another great conversation. Well, it's only been a couple of weeks since we last recorded together, so... How was your Christmas? Did you make any New Year's resolutions? Uh, My New Year's resolution for this year actually is to uh, probably incorporate a little bit more play, just a little bit more relaxing. I've been really, really super busy on a number of book projects, and I think it might be good to just slow it down just a little and uh, just enjoy more of what life has to offer. So that's my goal is to just not be quite so busy, but I still have some great projects that I'm excited about. Wonderful. Well, today I am drinking a Best Day Brewing West Coast IPA. It is non-alcoholic, but uh, still actually tastes rather good because we've been doing so many early morning recordings this season. I had to had to come up with some way of drinking early while still being productive for the rest of the day. So this <laughs> is it. <laughs> Are you drinking anything? I am. I'm actually drinking plain old water, but what makes it really special is my Pints with Jack sticker on my water mm. bottle. So I am uh, flying the flag and supporting Pints with Jack. Yes, you actually have both stickers. So you have our current logo and the previous logo back in the days when we were called the Eagle and Child. Yes. Well done. Cheers. Cheers. The reason that you're here is because of a certain book, Letters from Jack. Would you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about the origin of this book? Sure. I'd I'd love to. So I teach in the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University, and like most programs for undergraduates, our our seniors are required to do a senior thesis. But rather than doing a regular, independent uh, kind of senior thesis, our students gather together in groups of usually nine or ten students, and they work together to write a book And that book focuses on one author or one topic that they really want to understand in a great deal of depth. Those books then are printed. They're printed in a limited edition, and those are distributed just to those Honors College graduates and their families. And so this started because students really wanted to take a dive into the letters of C.S. Lewis And we got excited about the possibility of being the very first group of authors to write a book about uh, Lewis as a letter writer. Mm. It's amazing how many different collections there are of Lewis's letters, but there isn't a whole lot of secondary stuff out there on the letters specifically. 
You often see them leveraged when scholars are talking about his books or events in his life. They'll draw from his letters to help augment their arguments or to provide a little bit more background. But I couldn't think of anything that's specifically on his letters. Yeah, that was our observation as well. We wanted to write a book about the letters and about Lewis himself as a, a writer of letters. The challenge, I think, for us was to find an angle or an approach because there are a lot of Lewis letters that have been published, nearly 4,000 mm. of them in the Oof. large three-volume collection by Walter Hooper, um, and uh, about a quarter of that in the edited version by Warren Lewis. And so uh, we were trying to figure out what would be a connective uh, theme or a way to approach these letters that felt manageable. I'm, I'm a big believer, especially when I have the opportunity to edit a book, that a book is better if it's more focused and goes in mm. a little bit more depth rather than it's too broad and is just making sweeping generalizations. And so we landed on this idea that the letters from Lewis are full of advice and a lot of the advice is very practical. So each of the contributors, each of the students who is doing a senior thesis decided to choose a different aspect of the kinds of advice that Lewis gives. And so we have a chapter on advice about reading and writing. We have a chapter on handling relationships from Lewis's point of view. I'd say one of the most interesting chapters and one that as I was kind of looking at this again in preparation for our conversation, one that really stood out to me is the chapter on Lewis's advice on moods. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I like about that particular chapter is we tend to view Lewis through the lens of his success, wildly successful, especially now, but later in life as different books were published and as he gained some acclaim through his broadcast talks. But we don't think of him as being insecure. We don't think of him having self-doubt. We don't think of him wrestling with depression. And he gives really good advice and honestly, a little glimpse into this struggle, personal struggle that he has as he is reaching out and helping and supporting his correspondents, dealing with some of those topics. And so that was a chapter that was particularly interesting to me. Yeah. As we've gone through letters to an American lady, Latin letters and letters to children, there is something that you get out of letters that you don't get out of someone's main books. You get to see more of a complete person and yes. you, you get to see them warts and all because these texts are not carefully edited by their original author. They're often dashed off fairly quickly, usually in the, in the middle of marking exam papers. And this is one of many letters that he had received that day. And he's spending two hours most days responding to all of this stuff. You can't varnish that too easily. And I, I do think that it is a wonderful way of getting to know any author, but particularly Lewis. I think that's true. I think the importance of Lewis as a letter writer can't be overstated because this took up a good part of every single day for Lewis. He considered answering letters to be one of his most important spiritual disciplines. And I find that really quite remarkable. He didn't like writing letters, didn't like getting letters particularly, but he felt that God had given him a platform, I guess we'd call it today, an opportunity of some influence. And he wanted to do all the good that he could. And you would think that maybe the best way for him to do that would be to ignore the males and just focus on writing great books. But he didn't see mm -hmm. it that way. And I, I think that's a reflection of his emphasis on the value of the individual 
people matter, individual souls matter, and compassionate and thoughtful response to these various individuals who wrote to him, this took up a big part of his day. He was prayerful, he was specific, he was kind, he was encouraging. And uh, as our book, Letters from Jack, emphasizes, he was intensely practical in the kind of advice that he gave. It's kind of funny because I've heard people lament, for example, how much of Lewis's time, I know Warney did this, he lamented about the amount of time that Mrs. Moore effectively stole from Jack when he could have yeah. been writing more brilliant books. But I can't help but feel that these were actually the petri dishes for ideas for future books and for his thought. I mean, the, the character of a hard-to-live-with woman appears many times <laughs> in his works. And as we've read through the various collections so far this season, you see the seeds of so many of his books, you know, the ideas being expressed in their first form, and they'll later come out in, in something published. Even just the very fact that we have the screw tape letters, we have letters to Malcolm. He was so practiced at this particular form of literature that it actually starts taking over his you know, proper books. I absolutely love that idea of a Petri dish or an opportunity for these ideas to take root and grow and then eventually be manifest in the various books that he wrote. And so one thing that the letter writing does for Jack is it helps him on a daily basis to be doing what we might think of as his scales or his exercises. He's staying <laughs> practiced at putting ideas into words and uh, I think that that's one of the great gifts of this regular habit first thing in the morning of answering the mail. Um, but I think that this sense that we get when we read Lewis's books, that he understands us, that he knows us, that he's speaking with us in a way that's really hitting us right where we live. I don't think we would get that if his main focus in writing hadn't been this kind of correspondence. He's always aware that he's not just writing down smart ideas and then sending them out into a vague universe. He's <laughs> writing specifically to individuals who have real questions and real concerns. And the way that those themes get woven into his books and the sort of personal approach that he takes, I think, is absolutely shaped by the letters that he writes. Yeah, we're going to mention him a little bit later, Dr. Stephen Beebe, in his book about Lewis as a communicator. The A of his high T is that Lewis was audience-centered. Yes. And I think it was for a very simple reason that he spoke to a awful lot of his audience. For myself, when I'm, when I'm reading uh, books particularly related to pastoral theology or what we might call more practical theology, you notice a difference between those who are actually pastors and who deal with people day in, day out, and those who manage to um, stay in their ivory towers. Because there's a different sense, a different texture to what they're writing, because what they're telling you is coming from real conversations that they've had with people in their office. Yeah, and you can think about the way that for Lewis, writing to the average person, the average reader, puts him in a different class than those who are only in the classroom or talking with their fellow professors. Lewis has to take the most sophisticated and complicated ideas and put them in simpler terms. And what you see in the letters, I believe, you see him adapting to these different audiences and really expanding his range of ability and skill in explaining things in simpler terms and also coming up with these vivid illustrations. Uh, one of the things that we love about Lewis is, is his ability to have an apt metaphor or a great comparison or illustration of some kind 
that unpacks a really complicated and sophisticated idea. Where does he practice that? He practices that in this daily practice of letter writing. Mm. He actually says in, I think it's one of his essays, and I think it was an address to a bunch of clergymen at a seminary, basically saying that he thinks that the final test of any seminary education should be that you have to take some high theology and translate it for the everyday man. And if you can't do that, you probably shouldn't be ordained. That's right, because you probably don't really understand it. And Lewis understands things well because he's practiced in going over this in various ways to a variety of audiences. And his versatility in this, I think, to some extent, helps to explain why we continue to read him so happily. Mm. That was fun. I didn't intend on speaking so much about <laughs> Lewis as a letter writer, but we got going. I should explain in particular why we're talking about this book. Firstly, it's it's a book about letters. And so it's very pertinent for this season since we've been reading Letters to an American Lady, Letters to Children, and Lewis's Latin Letters. And when I discovered this book's existence, I tried to find a copy and I then discovered that it was out of print. As you say, the fairly small print runs. So that was understandable. Fortunately, you were kind enough to send me a signed copy. But then I got it and I started flipping through the pages of the book and I realized that this would be a perfect accompaniment to this season. And so I discussed it briefly with Andrew and Matt. And as soon as I told them that I'd received a copy, they said, you're sending that on to us, right? Like, no. <laughs> um, but I, I thought I would like to discuss this with both of them as well as with our patron supporters. But there was this problem of it being out of print. And so that's when I contacted you again and said, what would it take to make that happen? And so we put in an order for 200 copies to be shipped to my house. And then over Christmas, I mailed out all copies to our platinum and gold level supporters, as well as our bronze level supporters who have been with us for several years. And hopefully, if you're listening to this, you should have already received your copy, if that's you. If you have issues, please just shoot me a message from the website. And I actually also have some leftover copies, I think about 70 or 80. So if anyone listening to this would like a copy of Letters from Jack, this is this is this is very exclusive and limited. Uh, you can shoot me a message and I can send you a copy. It will be at cost. I'll try and make it as cheap as possible to get it out to you. But my overall hope in all of this is that this is how we're going to end the season. Because those of you listening to us, those of you following us on Patreon and in Slack, we've been talking about these letters and we will have been talking about them for several months. So what I'd like to do is end this season with a Patreon event where everyone's invited. And we're just going to talk about our experience of reading Lewis's letters, and then particularly through the lens of this book, because this book does give you a really good summary of the sorts of things that we've been talking about as we've been going through his letters. So with that, let's dig into this book a little bit. Uh, first of all, Dr. Glatt, to whom is this book dedicated? Because it's a name I've often seen mentioned in Inklings-related literature and circles, but he's not been on the show. Yeah, I, I would love to. So the book is dedicated to uh, Dr. Roger White. Roger White worked for many years as a librarian and educator at Azusa Pacific University. He also spent a couple of years in Oxford, where he became very active in the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society and was able to be a co-editor on a book that collected a lot of the lectures that had been given at the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society. And those were gathered into a book, and he was one of the editors of that volume. He's also a friend and colleague of mine. Uh, he's taught in the Honors College at APU. But the reason we wanted to dedicate it specifically to Dr. White 
is that Azusa Pacific has an Inklings collection as part of its library. And the start of that Inklings collection came from Roger White's vision. And particularly during his time in Oxford, he discovered that there were a lot of books at the time, this would have been 10, 12 years ago, I think he was there and started the collection. He discovered that there were a lot of books in various resale shops, Oxfam and others, throughout Oxford that featured the minor inklings, not just Lewis, not just Tolkien, but some of the other folks, some of the the Owen Barfields and the Hugo Dysons and, and so on, Lord David Cecil. And he started quietly buying up books, not by the major inklings, but by what we think of as the minor inklings, and then su- suggested to APU that we start a collection specifically that looks at not the particular authors as much as the group, the inklings themselves. And so he used the bibliography that's in the back of the company they keep as his guide and bought up what he could by and about all 19 members of the group known as the inklings and established the inklings collection. Since then, it's grown to be one of the largest Lewis-related book collections uh, in the United States. We also through his friendship with Owen Barfield the Younger, were given uh, on loan letters and items from the Owen Barfield family. So the Owen Barfield family papers are also deposited at Azusa Pacific. So we've got this great collection. And as we were doing research, that collection really informed us. But not only that, as we were working through this material and trying to find our focus, as we were trying to answer questions and enrich our understanding of Lewis as a letter writer, Dr. White acted as an advisor through this project. And we were just really super grateful for his help. Mm, That is wonderful. I had no idea that Azusa had such a large collection. I knew it certainly had some stuff, but this is great. So for people that don't want to go to Chicago in the winter to go to the Wade Center because the weather is awful. Uh, They can now go to sunny California and still look at inkling stuff. Isn't that great? Okay, so let's, uh, let's let's look to the body of the book. You said that it's grouped around different collections of advice. And so I'm looking at my book here and it says advice on books, love, moods, faith, and recursive advice. Mind just talking through some of these sections and some of the bits of advice? Because I really liked the way that they were each presented as an essay. But at the end of each of the chapters, there's a nice little numbered list of these are Lewis's pieces of advice for you. So it's it's really nice to be able to go down and just like take them off, particularly in the new year, uh, as as people are looking for resolutions to follow. They can actually look in this book and see some of the things that they can uh, resolve to do this coming year with regards to books, loves, their moods, their faith, and uh, how they give and receive advice. That's a good approach to it. So yes, at the end of each chapter, there's a list of specific advice on these various topics. So the first chapter is Lewis's advice on reading, on writing, and on critiquing writing. And uh, one of his most important and clear pieces of advice, Lewis tells this correspondent that what she needs to do is turn off the radio. I love this bit. (laughs) Now, for us, we don't usually think about a radio, but uh, we do think about being in an environment that is inherently noisy. And so Lewis believed that if you want to become a good reader or a good writer, 
you need silence. Uh, in fact, he wanted to silence you even from reading junk. So he says in a corollary to turn off the radio, don't read magazines, don't read junk. I, I think he would say, don't scroll on TikTok. Don't, don't spend too much time on Facebook or Twitter. He's really interested in the way that the material that we take in, the information that we take in, the ideas that we take in, will show up in the writing as it is produced. So if we want to be good writers, we want to be thoughtful readers, we need an environment that supports our very, very best thought. We want to get rid of distractions. And uh, we want to be writing, if we are writers, we want to be writing with the ear as well as the eye, he says. And if we're going to do that, we can't have noise going on or else that'll show up in the actual style. How many English teachers do I know who have found that after they've just worked their way through a stack of freshman essays, they can't write good academic prose <laughs> because somehow <laughs> those sentences and those word choices and those, that awkwardness that you see even the tone of some of those essays, it ends up showing up in the stuff that we're trying to produce. Lewis is going to be quite emphatic that we need to read good books. And you know, David, that for Lewis, what that means are old books. Mm -hmm. So another piece of Lewis's advice is that for every new book that we read, we should read at least one old book and be steeped not only in what's happening, what's modern, what's being published now, but the great works of the past. And that great works education was so important to him. I would like to point out, though, I don't think he would endorse people turning off Pints for Jack. No, no, no. Oh, no. Obviously, that would enrich our wisdom. And not only that, but uh, if we do it right, we'll get a British accent out of it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And also this idea of reading old books. It's its funny because because of Lewis, I actually don't get to do that as much as I would like because we're interviewing guests. I'm actually usually reading books that have been published either you know a month or two ago or they're actually getting released in a couple of months. And so I'm reading those and I, I read one or two of Lewis's older books per season. So I think it's good advice, but because of C.S. Lewis, I can't do it. <laughs> so another chapter is his advice on relationships. Lewis talks about marriage, he talks about friendship, and he does that within the context of a, of a grateful attitude toward it. One of his pieces of advice is that friendships deserve our care, they deserve our attention, that friendships just don't happen accidentally, they happen with intentionality. They need active maintenance in order to thrive. And one of his pieces of advice in order to accomplish that is to live as close as you possibly can to the friends that you have. And I think about this particular piece of advice in light of a very controversial Lewisian topic, which is the theoretical cooling of his friendship with Tolkien. There's been a lot of ink spilt and a lot of anger expressed uh, over that theoretical break in their friendship. And there's a lot that could be said about that. But one of the factors of that is exactly what Lewis is talking about here. Once Tolkien moved further away from where Lewis lived and where uh, the both of them worked, it was harder and harder for them to stay in touch. And he believes that regular visits, time spent together, intentional time spent together, is really, really important. That really should take priority 
over things like job opportunities or other possibilities. He really thought friendships deserved that kind of close attention. So maybe one New Year's resolution that might come out of this bit of advice is thinking about ways that we can do a better job of keeping in touch. Now, we have options that Lewis and Tolkien didn't have. We have Zoom and we have uh, easier access to telephones. David, are you old enough to remember when we used to have to make our phone calls at night because they were less expensive than if we made a long distance call during the day? Do you remember? I do. We even had one of those old rotary phones. They were fairly rare at that Rotor. point. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I'm old. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy now for us to stay in touch through lots of different ways, but the problem is our schedules get crowded. You asked me about my New Year's resolution, and I think this is part of what I'm thinking about. Is my day, is my weekly schedule so crowded that I don't make time to reach out to people that otherwise I'm not in touch with as often as I'd like to be. And I think that that would be advice from Lewis. Are we prioritizing friendships? Are our friendships going beyond just a nodding acquaintance as we invest time in one another and care for one another through the ups and downs of, of life? Mm. I actually first came across that advice from Lewis while I was living in a house with two of my friends, and we lived in the same apartment complex as a the, the girl version of our house. So it was a bunch of people from our church who all lived together. There had been like a real cluster around that particular area. So we got to see everybody very often and very easily. And of course, a lot of that changes when you get married. But just last night, my wife and I, we were talking about our children and <laughs> We described being a parent as just growing people that you want to hang around with. You know, we 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 have we have two wonderful children, and it, it's it's great because we have all of the same interests, you know, in them and the books that they read. Even if it is Mulan for the third or fourth time this morning. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear! It could be worse. It could be Frozen. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah. So that's not such a bad one. That's not such a bad one. Another chapter in uh, Letters from Jack is advice on moods, on dealing with things like discouragement and grief. And uh, one of Lewis's pieces of advice on this, I think, is really pertinent because I'm going through a a week that's been hard for me. We've lost uh, Stan Matson this week. Mm. And he was not only a dear friend of mine, he's the founder of the C.S. Lewis Foundation, and his loss leaves a tremendous gap. I miss him. I miss him desperately, and I'm grieving the loss of Stan in my life. And so as I think about that, I think about Jack's advice, and he says, and this is a quote, he says, if you must weep, weep a good, honest howl. (laughs) So he believes that uh, grief ought to be expressed. We ought to be honest about our grief. We should be honest with one another when we're grieving. And we should express that and find ways to express that, being intentional about sitting with our grief, experiencing it. I I think there can be something almost holy about actually admitting that we're having a hard time, that we're dealing with loss and uh, continuing to find creative ways to express that. Lewis says that we should not only express our grief, but we should be observant in terms of what we can learn from our grief. So as we enter into a season of grieving and loss, difficulty and frustration, 
we have a chance to reflect what does that tell us about what we value and what does that teach us about possibilities going forward. And again, it raises the question, how should we be investing our time, our attention? How should we be spending our talents in light of what is revealed by seasons of grief in our life? It was one of the things that I think really surprised us. I'd read Letters to an American Lady before, but one of the things that really struck me in this rereading was how he really encourages the expression of emotion. And he, he writes elsewhere about that he's not very good at this, but he really does try and encourage people to let all of these feelings come out. So many people view, view him, I'm going to say, as an Englishman and therefore emotionally repressed. <laughs> uh, but I was, I was really quite surprised as to how he really encouraged Mary Willis Shelburne to engage with the feelings that she felt, but then, as you say, to learn from them and then to focus them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the most powerful uh, chapters in Letters from Jack is the advice on faith. And it won't surprise you at all to know that the advice that Lewis gives often circles back to the idea of prayer and spending time in prayer. I think it's profound when we think about the success of Lewis to recognize how seriously he took his prayer life. He had a very long list of people he was praying for. You're probably aware that at one point he went to his spiritual advisor and asked if he might have permission on a really, really long and tiring day to pray for some of the people on his list in categories rather than individually <laughs> by name because he simply couldn't get through all the names on the list. He, he found this a priority, and he believed that prayer – should be a priority for all Christian believers. Interestingly enough, having just talked about the expression of grief and handling of emotions, he believed that prayer shouldn't necessarily involve our feelings, mm. that our prayer life should be marked by faithfulness. Just do it, I think, would be <laughs> his advice on prayer. Faithfully pray. Feelings may come, feelings may go, feelings of devotion feelings of affection, feelings of God's presence, they may occur, they may be part of the experience, but that's irrelevant. In fact, in Screwtape Letters, Lewis is quite adamant that it is sometimes the prayers that are completely absence of any kind of ecstatic experience that are most beloved by our Lord because they are prayed in absolute and utter tenacity, belief in the idea that God hears us and cares for us, whether at the moment we feel like God's beloved or not. Mm, yes. When the man looks and looks around a world that seems to have all traces of God disappeared and yet still chooses to obey. Yeah. When we read Letters to Children, the one that really, well, actually we haven't, has been released yet. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> One of the, the chief pieces of advice that he gives in Letters to Children is to his goddaughter, Sarah, on the eve of her confirmation. And he says he's not going to be able to attend, but he teaches her that very point. Along with this grace in her first Holy Communion, she may receive wonderful feelings of closeness to God and spiritual exuberance. He says, but God might not give that, but that doesn't actually matter. 
you know, the, the important thing is, is to go through it and, as you say, be faithful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's powerful stuff. It's a powerful and important idea, I think, to hold on to. There's another aspect of Lewis's advice on prayer that surprised us as a team. So remember that our team had spent all summer reading through the letters of C.S. Lewis, the smaller volume edited by Warren Lewis. We'd spent all summer reading and discussing it. And then we got together in the fall, and that's when we started rereading and discussing even at a deeper level and then trying to figure out what the individual research projects would be and then the students doing their research. So we spent a full year reading these letters. And of all the things that we discovered in the process, there was one thing that we ran across that I didn't anticipate and none of the students did either. And that's Lewis's advice that when we can, we should pray without words. Mm-hmm. And, and we came across that advice and we thought, wait a minute, this is the one of the most articulate individuals who has ever lived, <laughs> one of the most beloved authors of all time. And he's talking about something he calls praying without words. And we were actually a little bit worried about that because we weren't really sure what he meant by that. And what What he talks about is he talks about a mystical experience of prayer, prayer without words. One of the books that we teach in the Honors College is Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle, if you're familiar with that. And she also talks about this mystical experience, prayer without words, encountering God, expressing from the heart our gratitude toward God, our love for God, and opening ourselves to the possibility that maybe prayer is more than me talking. Maybe prayer is me listening. Yeah. And that was kind of a paradigm shift, I would say, for our entire team as we were working on this. How do you open yourself to the possibility that my prayer life consists of a whole lot more then my request, my concern, and my pouring out my heart to God. But there is a silence that comes where I think that there's an opportunity to ask the question, and what is God speaking to me? Mm-hmm. And how am I experiencing God's presence in, in an authentic way? I, I didn't expect that from Lewis, uh, his... <laughs> blazing intellect and his skill with language. I thought he was going to focus on articulate prayers, perhaps even things like the Book of Common Prayer, written prayers that help us and elevate the language that we use to address God. But no, he talks about how, if possible, we should pray without words. Hmm. It's funny because the first reading at Mass last week was from the incident when Samuel is woken many times in the night and uh, he's eventually told to to go back to sleep and the next time he hears that voice to say speak lord your servant is listening as you're indicating for many of us our, our prayer really begins even if it's implicit it's listen up god your servant is talking <laughs> <laughs> brilliant brilliant i love that i love that that idea in particular, it, it appears in a few places. So in Screwtape Letters, he says that sometimes you should try and get your patient to run to that advanced prayer when they're kind of not ready. Um, and that can actually sometimes be a benefit to Screwtape. 
But yeah, I read uh, Dr. Downing's book, Into the Region of Awe, where he talks about Lewis's mysticism. And it's surprisingly present in his work, given that he is not regarded by, I'd say, most people as a mystic. Yeah, I think that that is uh, that's absolutely true. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for the reference to Downing's work on that. I think that that's really brilliant. Well, what about the uh, final section of advice, recursive advice? Recursive advice was the chapter that uh, one of my students wanted to write, and I tried to talk her out of it because I couldn't figure <laughs> out how she was going to write an entire chapter about advice. But it turns out, I think, to be one of the most profound chapters in the book. So it starts with the question, should we even listen to the advice that he has to give us? Is there any reason why Lewis is uniquely uh, situated to give us advice? Why does his advice hold more weight, perhaps, than people who know us personally or those who are have a spiritual authority over us or, or some other folks? And so she explores that a little bit and then I think helps us to understand that all that Lewis wrote, he wrote in order to help, to instruct, and that includes his letters as well as his fiction and nonfiction published works. But then she offers some, I think, important concerns or warnings, I might even say, for how we read these letters. As you mentioned earlier, it's very common for scholars and others to take Lewis quotes maybe even make a meme out of them and then stick them up on a social media site. <laughs> and a lot of times when you're taking a quote from the letters, it's particularly problematic because you're taking it out of the context, not only of the topic that's being discussed, but the person to whom that is addressed. Mm -hmm. And so one piece of advice that uh, Emily gives us in her wonderful chapter on recursive advice is that we need to remember Lewis's context Lewis is responding to a letter he has received. He's answering a question. Unfortunately, most of the time we don't know what the question is, but we can't take these as bald expressions of Lewis's deepest thought on a topic. He's responding to a person who has a particular concern. And so thinking about context uh, is really, really important. Looking at several different letters that all address the same topic will help to give us a more well-rounded and robust view of whatever advice that he's giving. We also want to look at the structure of his letters. A lot of times when he is setting up his advice, he's sort of setting up the context for his advice. And so I think that we have to read his letters a little bit more carefully and not take them further than Lewis might intend in those individual letters. Particularly having read Letters to an American Lady this season, there is the classic quotation, there are far, far better things ahead, which is actually a misquotation and more importantly, misses the <laughs> entire context. What he says to Mary Willis Shelburne about what she assumes to be her fairly imminent death, it takes on a very different shade and a very different understanding, certainly from the quotation when it's wrenched from its context, once you've actually walked with them, at, at least on one side of the conversation, to see what it is that this woman has gone through, the things that Lewis has already said to her. And you get a sense of what some of her own personal scruples are and what she actually needs to hear. One of the things that I liked is one of the pieces of advice given was uh, freely take encouragement. 
for some people, uh, they seem to have a resistance to it. And so, as you say, the advice is is tailored to the person. And it puts me in mind of when I was in school and we would have uh, an assembly at the beginning of the day and our our teachers would be telling us that exam season's coming up, you guys all need to spend more time studying, et cetera, et cetera. And I was a very diligent student, but them, them saying that really wound me up. And I would come home and my mum would ask me what the problem was. I said, oh, they say we've got to work more. She says, they are not talking to you. <laughs> the idea that advice is advice to very particular people. It's not all universal. And particularly as we mentioned in uh, the major and the missionary in those letters, you get to see both sides. So you get to see what the other person has said. And so why somebody might be pushing a little bit harder or actually might be being a little bit softer around a particular issue because they know that person's disposition and what it might be necessary to be able to hear the advice that's about to be given. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Another thing we see in this advice on advice chapter, this recursive advice chapter is is this idea of how Lewis postures himself as an advice giver. And one of the things that really struck us, remember that we spent a full year reading and rereading all of these letters. And one of the things that struck us is that Lewis does not set himself up as an expert. In fact, he downplays his authority. And again and again, he reminds his correspondent, I'm just a fellow pilgrim. I'm just walking the same path that you are. I'm a I'm a guide on the side. I'm I'm not an authority. I can't tell you what to do. And I loved that, that he sees himself so much as a consultant and fellow believer and not as someone who had some sort of magical power to, to have the right answer every time. His humility and his character are so evident in these letters. Mm. It's the opening quotation, I write as one amateur to another. That's right. It's a much safer position to put yourself in because as St. James says, you know, few of you should become teachers because you'll be judged more severely. Absolutely. Which I, I personally want that emblazoned on every teacher training college in the country, but that's <laughs> another point for another time. <laughs> well, at the end of the book, there is a letter from Lewis, a transcription and some commentary on it. What was the goal of this section? Yeah. So we were, I don't know, three months or so into working on this project. My students had good drafts of their relative chapters. We were going through and continuing our research. And then some of us met with, again, with Dr. Roger White And we were talking about the project and he was giving us advice, particularly helping us to find good resources. And then he turns to me and he says, hey, you know, we've got five unpublished letters as part of the Inklings collection in our library. I mean, just the other end of the building, there are five unpublished letters from C.S. Lewis. What would happen if you tried to publish one of them? <laughs> How do people think about something so extraordinary? And so part of me is that's amazing. And part of me was this will never, never happen. <laughs> We're a group of students. I'm a college professor. How can we publish a letter, a Lewis letter for the very first time? And I thought, well, I don't want to let Roger down. So I'll go ahead and I'll write a letter to the Lewis estate and I'll explain. We own this letter could we have your permission to publish it in this student collection? And they said, yes. (laughs) And it was extraordinary. And so I thought, okay, if we're going to publish this letter, we need some context for it. It makes some references that I don't even understand. It talks about some individuals. I don't know who they are. And so I, I thought, well, 
kind of on a roll here. The estate said, <laughs> yes, we've got Roger on our side. What would happen if I reached out to the best expert in the world on Lewis as a communicator, Stephen Beebe, mm-hmm. and I asked him if he would take a look at the letter and write a commentary on it to explain some of its mysteries and to just unpack what he sees, particularly reflected in this formerly unpublished letter about Lewis as a communicator, as Lewis in the private realm, communicating Christian to Christian, person to person. Delightful to work with Stephen. It was just a, a joy. And then he brought in some other experts who weighed in on some different aspects. We had a whole collaborative thing happen, and I was so happy. And so that was the final part of the uh, book. The final piece of it was we were able to publish this letter and commentary on it. There isn't anything there that I would say was earth shattering, but I think that it is one of the finest analyses of Lewis as a letter writer, Lewis's specific gifts that I could have possibly imagined. So it's a great uh, addition to the book. It really rounds out what we were trying to do. And I think it gives a lot of added value to our readers. Yeah. It's an example of everything that's been talked about thus far in the book. (laughs) Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? I think that I would I would just say that I am exceedingly proud of the students who devoted a year to studying this thoughtfully, to writing the very best that we could. Again, this is written by a group of undergrads under my direction. I functioned primarily, I guess, um, more as a, a developmental editor mm-hmm. than a line editor or copy editor, uh, and I wanted to help them to really appreciate what Lewis has to offer as a letter writer and to do something that hadn't been done before. Take a good, thoughtful, scholarly look at Lewis's letters and Lewis's advice to us. Dr. Diana Glyer, thank you again for coming on the show. Hey, it's a joy. As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can go to find out more about you? Honestly, they should have the website memorized at this point. I would love people to stop by uh, at dianaglier.com and uh, maybe check out my most recent book, The Major and the Missionary. If you like letters, you're going to love this because this is one of those very rare times in the history of letter writing where we have a complete correspondence, in this case, between Warren Hamilton Lewis and a missionary doctor named Blanche Biggs. Their story is wonderful, and I think you're going to love it. And normally when I ask that question, I usually ask my guests to tell listeners where they can go to get a copy of the book that we've been discussing. But in this case, Letters from Jack is out of print, except for the nearly 100 copies sitting in my office closet. So listeners, if you would like a copy and you haven't received one already, you can either start supporting Pints with Jack at one of our top two tiers. So that's surprised by Pints and Till We Have FaceTime. Or you can shoot me an email, contact at pintsforjack.com. Let me know where you are and I can work out what postage will be. And I can send you a copy while stocks last at cost of Letters from Jack. And I look forward to talking with all of you at the end of the season when we have a big video chat about what it's been like sitting down and reading Lewis's letters for the past few months. But to wrap up, I'd like to thank our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah, our intern, Julia. Thanks to all of our listeners and Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Mary, Margaret, Aldo, Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joelle, Amanda, Thomas, 
Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every week, particularly on Tuesdays, and particularly offering the prayer requests from our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. And honestly, if you've really enjoyed it, write to me and get a copy of the book. So please join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.